Listener Production. Welcome to Real Crime. This is Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. My guest career spans some of the most tumultuous events in Victoria's history. Alex Christich joined Victoria Police in 1976 when the crooks were at war with the cops. It was a time of armed robbers and murderers with no fear of the police. In 1986, Christich was on the manhunt for Pavel Marinov, dubbed Mad Max by the media, a burglar who took on the cops single-handedly. Aldo, as Christich was known, was there when Marinov's run ended in a shootout on a country road outside Melbourne. Later, Christich watched as narcotics transformed the underworld and the balance of power shifted from the old-school crooks to the new drug kingpins in the suburbs. Christich's last posting in 1995 was in Broadmeadows, on the city's northwest fringe. The Broadie beat was the toughest assignment in Victoria Police, and one of the local gangsters, Carl Williams, was about to start a gangland war in Christich's backyard. Alex Christich, welcome to Real Crime. Mate, you've dealt with all kinds of crime. Some of it's true, some of it's not so true. This is definitely real. Now, we're going to talk about the Broadie Beat, which you uh, worked on in the late 90s through to about 2005. But let's talk about your path to policing in the beginning. Where did your story begin? Well, um, my parents, God rest them, were both Serbs in the former Yugoslavia. And um, because of the political situation back then, the old man and, and his new wife, at the age of 26 years, decided that they would escape the regime and come to anywhere but the former Yugoslavia. Freedom, you know. But uh, my, my mother, uh, Stana, was pregnant with me when they escaped across the border into Italy. And, uh, you know, a few months later, I was actually born in a, in a displaced persons camp in a place called Fordemia in, you know, about the shinbone of Italy. I think the parents had a choice of either going to Chicago in the US or coming to Australia. So we jumped on the ship, the Toscana, and wound up in uh, Fremantle in 1959. I was two years old when we came to Australia. The funny part about it is, you know, as a five-year-old going to school, I couldn't speak English at all. Being a Serb, uh, there wasn't that many Serbs back in those days. It was mainly Greeks and Italians. I learned how to speak Greek and Italian, all, all of the good words in Greek and Italian, you know, nonverbal communication, basically duking it out in the, in the schoolyard. That's how it was. You learned English as you went along. You learned by osmosis, I think, more than anything else. And these were tough times. That was a tough area. Yeah. And, and you had to sort of stand up for yourself? Well, you had to. There, there wasn't anybody to come to your rescue. If the ship hit the sand, you had to be able to survive and acquired those survival skills, uh, you know, from a very early age. School didn't offer the excitement and adventure that young Alex craved. As a fifth form student, I, I think that the faculty at the school made it fairly clear that uh, I probably need to reconsider my my studies because I didn't do any. <laughs> so what am I going to do? I said, I like uh, a bit of adventure, a bit of fun. So I, I applied for the officer's training in the military at Portsea and applied for the coppers, for the Victoria Police as a cadet. Back in those days, I had cadets. You could join at 16 and a half to be a cadet. And... Um, the coppers got back first, so I passed the exam to get in, passed the physical to get in, and um, 
in February of 1975, I joined at the police depot in St Kilda Road as a police cadet and uh, subsequently stayed there for till mid-76 when I actually graduated as a constable from Glen Waverley Academy. Chris Titch loved the rough and tumble of policing the hard streets where he grew up, but making detective was always his goal. Well, I remember going to DTS, or Detective Training School, and the first thing they told you, they said, you guys are the top 10% of the police force. You are the best that we've got. And they made it crystal clear that you had to earn your place. And back in those days, detective training school wasn't like an attendance course where, you know, you got over the line if you did all the work. The pass mark was 75%. And if you didn't reach that pass mark, you failed and you never got another opportunity to go and do detective training. That's pretty well how it worked. The city that Christich policed was an unforgiving place where the cops expected the crooks to fear them and a backhander to bring them into line was common practice. It was a different world, totally different world. Media were different, you know, not everybody had a mobile phone with a camera on it. And if had they have had those back in those days, I think most of us would never have um, survived too long in the police force. And I think the public wanted and expected a certain level of enforcement, fear amongst the villains. Look, I think they did. Look, I think the public back in those days, I suppose to some degree they do these days, is they expect coppers to be brave. They expect them to intervene. If things are getting tough, if you're getting threatened in your house or you're being terrorised, they expect the police to turn up and fix everything. You know, the police in those days, they did turn up and they fixed everything. A lot of it was meatball surgery, you know. By the time I'd actually gone to the crime department, the consorting squad and... uh, the breakers had uh, amalgamated and uh, formed the major crime squad. And uh, back in the uh, early 80s, uh, the major crime squad and armed robbery squad um, occupied the fifth floor at Russell Street. During his time, Victoria Police was under assault, culminating in the 1988 execution of two police in Wall Street, South Yarra. Before that, in March 1986, the Russell Street Police headquarters was bombed. This came weeks after the end of the manhunt for cop shooter Pavel Marinov, known as Mad Max. That was a a name given to him by the media too, because he was a long way from mad, this guy. He was a very, very clever crook and he was a one-man band, you know? (laughs) The last shootout of the gunman they called Mad Max followed a decision by two policemen to flag down a driver they suspected was ready to kill them. Pavel Marinov was a Bulgarian army deserter and a crack marksman who was prepared to kill to escape police. You know, there's all sorts of yarns that go around, but uh, ultimately um, he was engaged in gun battles with the police as a result of being intercepted. Uh, he was just a burglar. He was working afternoon shift and he was doing uh, factory burgs or commercial burglaries, you know, late afternoons and evenings. And uh, one night he was intercepted by a couple of coppers and... Uh, as a result of that, um, he uh, lulled the two intercepting members into a false sense of security when they went to search the boot of his car. He came out with a uh, pistol and um, and severely wounded both of them. They were actually lucky to escape with their lives. And uh, the events immediately after that uh, resulted in several police being shot, none of which were killed, but, you know, significantly wounded, seriously wounded members and uh, that kicked off probably one of the biggest manhunts um, in Victoria Police history. To this point, Marinov had shot four police in cold blood. Remarkably, none had died. We didn't have much of an idea who this guy was. He was sort of like just a random fella from nowhere. But uh, he could consistently engage in a gun battle with the police and win every time. And he did. 
until the last time. You were doing raid after raid after raid. We with, did hundreds. When you say raid, they were what's classed as a level three raids, and the only two groups within the organisation within, within Victoria Police were the Special Operations Group and the Crime Squads that could do those level three raids. So they, these are dynamic house entries or building entries with using force. Once you're in that door, you don't know what's on the other side, what's likely to happen. You're not there for your good looks. You're not there just on a whim. We know that the person on the other side of that door is armed with firearms in most cases, and he doesn't mind using them. You know, he's going to kill the first two guys that come through the door. And as a general rule, one and two through the door are the first two guys that buy it. You know, you're, you're the guys that are going to die. How do you decide who goes in first then? Well, sometimes you drew straws, you know. You had an entry team. Everybody had a turn at being one and two through the door, which are the ones that are most likely to, to buy the farm on the way through. Uh, the Sarge is usually at number three. And, yeah, as a result of looking for Mad Max, we turned over lots of other bad guys, you know, all armed with guns and and things like that. Because the suspicion was that he was being harboured by members of his ethnic group. It, it turned out that um, that wasn't the case, you know. He was he was a bit of an enigma, you know. His group of friends was very, very small. He, he didn't show his cards. He very much led a double life, you know. He had a, he had a family, but he also had a... A girlfriend on the side, you know, he associated with people tied up in the gun caper. Nobody really knew that he was a crook, but he turned up to pistol clubs and watched how people did things. He also had a background in um, firearms through his military service. So he, he was fairly handy with a gun. He knew how to fight with a gun. And Victorian police of the 80s were pretty good with their guns too, let's not forget. Well, so. we were. So it ended up being a, uh, a showdown, really. That's how it worked out. You know, it was never intended to be, but, uh, you know, on, on the day that uh, I was involved in the in the last hours of his life or in his capture and... Uh, Take us through that. Actually, um, John Kapitanovsky, myself, uh, Rod McDonald and, uh, and an FSL uh, photographer, we, we, on some fairly flimsy mail or fairly flimsy information, set up an OP, an observation post in, uh, in Wollon. As a result of that, I observed a guy wearing a sort of red blondie sort of wig, uh, moving around a place, uh, a, you know, a dwelling occupied by a criminal that we were aware of. It was associated with other criminals that we were aware of. Had no idea who it was. We thought this guy's you know, driving around a white panel van, Queensland registration. On the morning that we actually got him, uh, he had a couple of kids that jumped in the front of the van with him, went for a drive, and. Uh, at the time, our communications, our radio communications weren't quite up to scratch. We had a glitch. Uh, Capra and Rod went to just have a look and see who he was. McDonald and Kapitanovsky pulled up alongside the van in their unmarked vehicle and identified themselves as police. The driver stopped and watched the cops approach, both armed with shotguns and handguns. They stood either side of the van and ordered the driver to place his hands on the dash. At the observation post... Christich was becoming concerned. There seemed to be a long time between the communications. I was a bit concerned. So, uh, at what distance were they away from you? We were using, um, you know, telescopic gear. It's probably at about five or six hundred metres. Later, Christich learnt what had happened. The driver had diverted the cops' attention, fishing for his wallet, but instead had produced an automatic pistol and shot both police. Kapitanovsky was wounded in the hand and shoulder. McDonald was hit in the chest. With that, Marinov tried to speed away. 
Rod was able to, to engage him with a Remington shotgun as he was being shot. He effectively blew Marinov's arm almost right off. Uh, his gun hand as he was shooting through the passenger side, you know, from the driver's seat through the passenger side where, where McDonald was, he fired his pistol shooting McDonald. McDonald fired back with his shotgun. This is after he was wounded. You know, pretty gutsy effort, you know. Pretty well blew his arm off. Marinov still, you know, pulled it together, took off across the paddock with this white van. McDonald uh, did a tactical reload, which I might add I taught him to do. How do you do that? Putting a round through the ejection port, putting the weapon into the instant condition while you're loading the magazine. When you've got a bullet in your chest too. When you've got a sucking chest wound, you know, it's a pretty big effort. You know, like when you're learning this stuff, your fingers are nice and dry. When your hands are both covered in blood and you've been shot through the chest and you're loading a shotgun, it makes things a fair bit more difficult. Anyway, McDonald um, re-engages Max as he's driving away. One round actually penetrates the back window of the van and one of the 12-gauge pellets, the SG pellets, actually uh, strikes uh, Max into the back of the head. And, and these, these are big... They're about probably about the size of a pea, but they're made out of lead and they're travelling at about 1,200 feet a second. So it's a, And there's nine of them in every cartridge. So one of them actually penetrated Marinoff's skull and killed him. The van then slewed off the road and careered through a series of fences before finally stopping in a paddock hundreds of metres from the scene of the ambush. At that time, we still didn't know who he was until we actually go and have a look. So I, um, I approached the vehicle, you know. You can picture a heap of SOG door kickers lined up with automatic weapons as we were approaching his vehicle. He's laying there. His 9mm pistol's on the floor. You know, sort of slumped in the in the driver's seat of the vehicle. There's an F1 submachine gun in the vehicle. There's blood sprayed all through the inside of this thing, and all I could see was this body with a significant arm wound, like a massive arm wound, with a blonde-haired guy with sort of olive sort of skin. You know, so I felt for a pulse. There was no pulse, but he was still warm. So I went to have a look at his face. So I took hold of his head or his hair on top of his head to push his head back to identify his face, and the wig came off of my hand. So as soon as the wig came off a man, bang, I said, that's, that's Mad Max, straight away, you know. And uh, that was a bit of a relief. So um, he was dead, you know. Kapitanovsky and McDonnell both recovered from their wounds. But this episode left a deep mark on Victoria Police and Alex Kristich, who dedicated himself to training officers to avoid the mistakes made during the hunt for Mad Max. Never again would Victoria Police officers make themselves so vulnerable they would get in first before the crooks. Alex Kristich lived through turbulent and bloody times in his police career. Between 1984 and 1995, Victoria Police shot and killed nearly twice as many people as all other police forces in Australia combined. I spent a bit of time at the detective training school as an instructor, after which um, you know, I was thinking about getting promoted to senior sergeant, which effectively put me back in uniform, so I ended up going to, uh, to the Firearms Operational Survival Training Unit, the newly formed one at the academy as a senior weapons and tactics instructor. So I spent a bit of time there with some other legendary guys, Jimmy Venn, uh, Don Stokes, Luke Scowcroft, Paul Carr, uh, 
all, you know, brilliant, brilliant blokes. Very. Now, this was at a time when Victorian police were shooting a lot more than their interstate counterparts. What was happening with that? It was quite funny. You'd have a meeting between Victoria Police and New South Wales Police and uh, we'd walk into the building and say, right, you guys, you promise not to steal anything if we don't shoot anyone. <laughs> you have to have a sense of humour in this, Cobo. Something began to happen out in the suburbs where there seemed to be, this is my perception, there seemed to be less focus on owning those streets like the, the ones that you'd grown up on and, and suddenly there were crooks who were coming up that weren't coming to notice, if you like. I think to a large degree that was probably to do with the, you know, the drug scene. In, in real terms, you know, like with, you know, the ecstasy, um, meth, uh, speed and all that sort of stuff, heroin. Like, you know, as detect, I, I went to Broadmeadows CIB as a detective senior sergeant. You know, I, was, I was 38 years of age. I was a young bloke. And um, they were looking for, you know, I suppose, young, keen leaders back in those days to address, you could almost call it an out-of-control situation, you know. Why was it out-of-control? Oh, well, it was, there was a lot of drug crime. There was a lot of violent crime, a lot of sexual crime. You know, you pick the top 10 offences in the Crimes Act and it was happening at Broadmeadows daily, you know. It, it was a violent, violent place. Um, and that was just the nature of the beast back in those days. I think days. it's still regarded as in the top 10 of most dangerous cities outside of Melbourne in Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's a tough town, old Broadie. And, uh, you know, well, I can remember Fitzroy when it used to be a tough town. It's not now. You get a, you need to be a millionaire to own a house in uh, in Fitzroy. But mm. in good old Broadie, um, you know, the the old time crooks were there, and then then you had the the recent arrivals. Um, you know, I suppose to some degree, organised crime, uh, drugs uh, sort of reached their the pinnacle. I suppose there to a degree, um, and people that weren't, you wouldn't regard them as, I suppose, criminal masterminds or heavyweights elevated themselves to high positions within the crime community. Right, and I guess my experience came through doing the whole Carl Williams gangland war scenario, and we spoke back then when you were actually still at Broadie. Yes. And I won't say which parts of the book came from you, but they were very <laughs> substantial and I'm very <laughs> grateful to you. We saw Carl Williams and his older brother Shane, and I think they were quite typical of the little drug businesses going on. They were doing a few cannabis plants and it became a few more. That is the typical scenario. You know, they start as bottom feeders and they move up to slightly higher bottom feeders. <laughs> Still eating <laughs> shit though. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Look, Carl Williams, he was no rocket scientist. You know, he definitely wasn't a tough guy, you know. And I don't think he was the sharpest tool in the shed. And I think the media and, and the scribes have made him more, uh, I suppose, more of a romantic figure than he really was. My fault entirely. I was the one that glamorised him. I, Sorry I, about I, that. I, I blame you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I accept <laughs> that. I do accept that on a certain level. But at the same time, in earlier times, he would have been sat on by police. He would have been... He wouldn't have known what hit him. Yeah. He would not have known what hit him. Because you were aware of him at that time when you were running the CIB at Broadmeadows. Look, we were, but the thing is, he was one of hundreds. You know, the crooks were coming out of the rafters up there. You know, but as detectives, um, you know, a classic scenario is uh, detectives have to turn out to any suspicious death. 
including overdoses, suicides, whatever you like, you know. So when heroin was hitting its straps, I suppose, out at Broadie, you know, the good quality Asian heroin that was being used, well, they're fairly honest with their drugs. They had very high content of um, heroin in them. There was overdoses left, right and centre. They were dropping like flies. You know, you'd get to work in the morning and, you know, the, the detective that was first to r- arrive at work in the morning would be, he'd be going out to an overdose, you know, there'd be a body laying in the street somewhere with a with a syringe still stuck in its arm and it'll be one of the local villains, you know. At least it was, I suppose, some sort of respite. When one of the local burglars or armed robbers overdosed, um, it uh, quietened things down for a little while. Yeah. So what was a typical day back at Broadie CIB in those days? Well, Broadie was far from a routine place. You know, there's, there was myself, I was the officer in charge. There was um, you know, anywhere between six and eight detective sergeants there and up to... 20 detectives, including the odd person doing temporary duties. So it's a fairly significant CI unit. I think it's even bigger now these days. I haven't been out there for a decade or so, so I don't know. But you name it, it occurred in Broadmeadows. It was nothing for the guy on the crime to, to go out to a, you know, multiple stabbings, you know, burglaries, uh, robberies, uh, significantly violent domestics. When I say violent domestics, I mean you know, where people are beaten half to death during a domestic argument, you know, drug rip-offs, all of that sort of stuff. So it's not long before the crime man gets there first thing in the morning. He does a triage. He picks out which of the most serious crimes he needs to attend. And then a sergeant will come in just after him and he'll say, righto, we need to distribute a few of these jobs out to the other detectives. So usually by, you know... 10 or 11 o'clock in the morning, the place is rocking. You know, you've got crime scene going, you've got villains being dragged in and interviewed, you've got guys kicking in doors, catching bad guys. And these are the worst of the worst that we were working on. Minor crime over there was very, it very much took a back seat. You know? and, and forget about being proactive, it was reactive yeah, all the it, time. It was, it was, as I've said in the past, it's meatball surgery, just keeping the show on the road, you know. You know, like it burnt up detectives. It was a brutal place as far as workload was concerned and very hard to keep a lid on. But I'll tell you what, the guys that came out the other side, the detectives that came out the other side, most of them have done very, very well in the police force and the organisation because you, you can't buy experience like that. 12 months at Broadmeadows CIB is worth three years anywhere else by a mile. Yeah, 1998 was a very busy year out in Broadie. A um, couple of things happened. There was uh, the shot that really began the whole gangland war, effectively. Is this when the, when the Morans shot Williams? Yeah, in Roxburgh Park. They did. As part yeah, of your beat. At the pub, yeah. They did, yeah. Jason and Mark Moran decided to teach the upstart Carl Williams a lesson after he muscled in on their drug business. They shot him in the stomach as a warning. Williams responded by killing them both and most of their family and associates. The biggest mistake they made is they didn't shoot him through the head. <laughs> I think if they, if they were still breathing, they'd reflect on that piece of advice. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens. You stand over people. They don't, they don't accept being stood over and, uh, you know, things escalate. Everyone's a boss. Everyone's earning top dollar. Everybody wants a Mercedes Benz. Everybody's got a gun. And they were freely circulating in Broadway at that time? They still are today, to my knowledge. And your crew was the first to actually arrest Carl Williams on a major drug charge. Well, that, yeah, that's a story in itself, yeah. Actually, the guys, uh, there's three detectives that had gone to the then Williams's commission uh, flat down in Broadie. You could hear a noise coming from a first-storey room 
This was just six weeks after the Morans had shot Williams, who always suspected that his rivals had dobbed him in. Christich denies this self-serving theory. Williams' operation wasn't exactly clandestine. I think one of them thought it was a washing machine. They ended up kicking the door in to arrest him on a uh, on some fraud matter, so some relatively random matter, but they find a significant amount of drugs lying around the place. And the machine that they actually heard was a pill press pumping out um, ecstasy pills at the top. Williams was in there. Uh, they'd trust him up and laid him down. Williams was hiding in a bed, fully dressed. His father, George, was hiding in another room where a loaded pistol was also found. One of them gets on the phone and rings me. This is back before mobile phones. Says, boss, you better get over here. We reckon we found a guy with lots of drugs. I couldn't believe it. Rubbed our ankles in drugs all over the place. I couldn't believe it. Unbelievable. And subsequently, you know, we called in the drug squad, which turned out to be a big mistake on that occasion. <laughs> the drug squad officers on this job, Stephen Payton and Malcolm Rosines, were later found to be corrupt and all their cases were put on hold while the allegations against them were dealt with. This included the drugs charges from the raid by Broadie Police. Mr Williams was never presented on any charges as arising from that. That's another story. Yes. But you're seeing Carl Williams there trussed up on the floor, drugs all around him. You think, here's another loser from Brody who, yep, who's, yep. who's run out of road. But how surprised were you to see what happened next? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, as I said, it was like, a, I suppose, just a rolling scenario, you know. But, uh, yeah, I would have thought, you know, you get a guy with that many drugs in a room, all the evidence is there, you've got nowhere to go and he never gets presented, you know. And that's a decision made by the Crown. So, you know, far be it from a lowly detective senior sergeant from Broadmeadows CIB to, to see things like that happen, but that's what happened. Well, I mean, how dispiriting is something like yeah, that? Well, the evidence, well, yeah, look, the evidence was tainted because of the involvement of those corrupt police. And, uh, you know, you put it in front of a jury, any half-competent defence counsel would blow it out of the water. At least, Christich's officers could still hold their heads high. If Williams had been incarcerated for those charges, it's likely that numerous murders simply would not have happened. My guys were never called into question. Everything was absolutely done by the numbers, never an issue, you know. And uh, as a result of others getting involved that should have seen the matter brought to, a, I suppose, a desirable conclusion, which would involve... Williams being put in jail. You imagine the number of lives that would have been saved if that had not have occurred, you know? But uh, that didn't happen. I would never have got to write my book, so I'm, well, I'm sort of, I'm, the, I'm a bit, the, I'm a bit biased, <laughs> I'm afraid, in this, this situation. Go, but, you're, but you're right, you're dead right. One of Christich's last jobs at Broadmeadows was the high-profile abduction and killing of a suburban housewife called Maria Corp in August 2005. It began as a missing person case. Yeah, that was another morning at Broadmeadows CIB. One of the detectives goes out there, basically, he says, look, the uniform guys are telling me, they're giving me a, a missing person story here, but a woman going missing, a little bit of blood found in a garage, husband um, declaring that she'd been uh, behaving normally and all of a sudden she just disappears off the radar. And, you know, as soon as you hear something like that, you know, good old detectives know straight away, there's a rat in a building, you know, something's going on. Maria's husband, Joe Corp, was under suspicion from the get-go. But on this occasion, things just didn't add up. You know, shortly after we found out that there was a uh, third person involved with... Tanya Herman? 
Tanya Herman was having an affair with Joe Corp. Yeah, look, we knew pretty well it was going to be, there's going to be a murder investigation from the outset. We just couldn't find the poor woman that was murdered. And that was a race against time because she wasn't dead at that time. Well, she wasn't dead and it had turned out that she'd been beaten up quite severely, put in a boot of a car and dumped, left for dead. Well, at the Shrine of Remembrance? Yeah, that, I mean, yeah. a bizarre place for, for yeah. a person to leave a body, really. Well, it, it was. It was. And um, unfortunately, um, it was a love triangle uh, scenario. It's not, it's not an uncommon situation. But on that occasion, poor Maria was the victim. She's a decent, hard-working mother and wife, did all the right things and uh, found herself on the receiving end of something like that. Miss Herman, she confessed to the offence eventually, went and did her time. What I don't get, though, was that after Maria died, she wasn't charged with murder. Why not? She ended up going to jail not for murder but for grievous bodily harm, I think, whatever the yeah, charge was. That, that was all something that occurred with the Office of Public Prosecutions. Far be it from me to question how they go about doing their business, but uh, it was decided that they would present her on that and uh, I think there was a plea situation there. I think she might even be out by now, is she? She is. There were some weird twists in that case, you know, yeah. but they were interesting, you know, like... Um, the offender's brother, you know, he was actually monitoring his brother's computer from a distance, you know. And when we seized his computer, he wasn't too happy about it, but that certainly helped, you know. And Joe, rather than face the reality of what he'd done, he took his own life as well. Well, and that was pretty well the end of that. Uh, the person that uh, quite rightly should have been charged with the murder was never given the opportunity because he killed himself. And this was right near the end of your own career, at the age of 45? No, well, I, I stayed abroad for 10 years from between 1995 and 2005. And then um, my wife and I, had, we ran away from our children, you know, <laughs> moved to a farm up in the Yarra Valley and I decided, you know, I'm going to slow down a bit. And uh, back in those days, um, when you reached your 50th birthday, you could retire from the police force. And that's what I did. I figured this, uh, there's other things I can do. There's a number of reasons for that. I, I wasn't a particularly great fan of... Uh, of the then Chief Commissioner and uh, some of the other introduced uh, senior officers. But, you know, having said that, I've always had a healthy disrespect for senior officers anyway. <laughs> I absolutely loved every single minute I was in the job, you know. I don't think I have any, you know, PTSD or anything like that. But it had just got to the stage where I'd done the things that I wanted to do. I wasn't particularly happy about the direction it was going in. And, yeah, there was a culture change in the organisation and the culture change was such that um, I don't think that my my presence in the organisation would have assisted much. Did you feel like a, a guy from an earlier generation? I did. I felt, you know, now I know what Tyrannosaurus Rex felt like. <laughs> and you miss it still, though? Uh, oh, I've still got lots of friends that are in the organisation and guys that are retired, you know. it's you know, Even after 20 years, you still say good day and resume a conversation as if it had happened yesterday. Yeah. I mean, this is an argument that a lot of older police make these days is that we lost the battle for the streets. And by the late 90s, the crims could run themselves on the streets. There wasn't that local knowledge. There wasn't that sort of door-to-door -door policing that you might have seen in an earlier generation. Look, yeah, I agree. Look, and look, if you analyse what's happening out there now, we've still lost the battle of the streets, you know. Look, they're doing a pretty good job there, but they've got political constraints on them. There's some... some Pretty good operators that are running the organisation these days, which is more than I can say for some of their immediate predecessors. 
yeah, look, it's tough out there. Yeah, they're labouring under some significant political pressure, like these shooting galleries and things like that. Uh, you, you walk down, the, you know, the main street of Melbourne, the place, it's like a toilet. You know, it stinks. There's crooks hanging around the place. There's no management. There's no control. The joint's out of control. Would you send a, a teenage kid into Melbourne to go and watch the to the movies or do something themselves unsupervised these days? Yeah, I'd think twice. We'd all think twice. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. There'll probably be young people who are listening to this thinking about a job in the police and possibly as a detective. What advice would you give them about the way they should conduct themselves, what they should expect in their role as a detective? One thing with detectives, I think, I suppose all the romantic stuff that you see on TV and all the, you know, the crimes being solved in a 30-minute episode, it doesn't happen like that. You've got to have an open mind. Don't ever jump to conclusions, right? The shortest note outlasts the longest memory. Attention to detail. A confession is a good start to an investigation. And don't trust the new one. <laughs> That's the way. Alex Christian, thanks for your time and thank you for your service to the community. Thank you. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer, Sarah Greenberg. Research by Nolly Wei Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.